0: Beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of horse labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Nophtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessing of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. And on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said. As he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is, it is in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, were, brought from, were bought from the Hittite. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come now for these few moments to give attention to your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us both eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we would ask that we would be not merely those who hear your word, but we would be those who do it as well. Bless now these few moments, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we are re-entering the final chapters of the book of Genesis. Six weeks ago, before we stopped for Advent, we saw Jacob blessing Joseph's two sons. In fact, he went so far as to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh as his own in order to ensure their future inheritance in the promised land. And as we move from chapter 48 into chapter 49, we see the final goodbyes and the theme of blessing continuing this morning. We can well imagine the scene of Genesis 49. Twelve grown men are gathered around the bed of their dying father. It's time to say goodbye. But there's more going on than merely the saying of goodbyes, the expressions of familial love. No, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jacob lays out the destiny of his sons and their descendants. By faith, the patriarch is looking past life in Egypt onto life when his descendants will return to Canaan. But that is an all That's going on. It isn't all that's being looked forward to. Genesis 49 is a cornerstone text as we consider the identity of God's future coming Messiah. The prophets and apostles understood Genesis 49 as a key piece of rightly discerning the identity of God's forever King. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, having spent time in the book of Genesis, That Moses, as he tells the story, is going to give us some surprises. He's going to give us some twists. And so on page five, you see there our big idea for this morning, that Moses uses surprise and scandal as he introduces us to the line and lineage of the Messiah. Moses uses surprise and scandal as he introduces us to the line and lineage of the Messiah. Now, if we think about that big idea for just a moment, It makes sense. After all, there is both surprise and scandal in the birth of the Messiah. Why wouldn't there be surprise and scandal in the prophecy that gets us, that tells us of the Messiah who is to come? So three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Let's understand the surprise. Let's understand the surprise. In verses 1 to 7, Jacob makes it very clear that even though Reuben is the firstborn, verse 3, his might, the first fruits of his strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, we get to verse 4 and we understand that Reuben is not going to obtain the firstborn blessing of his father. Look again at verse 4. By the way, this is not what you want to hear from your parent on their deathbed. Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. He goes on then to tell him why. You went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You see in Genesis chapter 35, we're told that after the, the death of, of Rachel, as she was giving birth to Benjamin, uh, Reuben took it upon himself to visit Bilhah, his father's concubine. And the text tells it very matter of factly, and this was made known to Jacob. So here's Jacob now, all these years later, saying, Listen, uh, you're my firstborn. You are the firstfruits of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but you're not going to have preeminence. That blessing will not go to you. Well, what about the secondborn and the thirdborn? We have Simeon and Levi, and the next who are in the order of in the birth order. But he tells them, no, they as well uh, will not be those who will be given the preeminence. Why? For in their anger they killed men, and in their wilfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. They have been disqualified. So we get then to verse 8. And there we see the surprise. In verse 8, we're told it's not the firstborn son. It's not even the second or the thirdborn son. It's not Joseph, who we honestly would expect to get this kind of blessing. No, it's Judah. Judah, the one who we were introduced to in Genesis chapter 38, who we understand will probably not be nominated for father-in-law of the year anytime soon. It's Judah who, after the death of his wife, went into what he thought was a a cult prostitute and found out later that it was actually his daughter-in-law. This is the one who's going to receive preeminence. Now, some of this is sort of par for the course. As we've been looking at Jacob and his family, and as we've been looking at this tale filled with rivalry and jealousy, as we've looked at this tale filled of deceit and lies and murderous intentions, if not outright murder, we've seen that this family is an absolute dumpster fire. And at the root of a lot of it is the kind of favoritism that Jacob has shown to one particular wife and her particular sons. So we would expect this kind of disqualification. We would expect Jacob to sort of stir the pot in this way and continue to show favoritism. But what we don't expect is that that favoritism is going to show up in the blessing of Judah. Judah is not the guy who should be first in our mind. That should be Joseph. And when we look at the disqualifications That happened to Reuben and to Simeon and Levi. And we go back and we remind ourselves or we reread Genesis chapter 38. We're left wondering, well, how is Judah any better than his brothers? And friends, the answer, of course, is he's not. He's not. You see the blessing that falls to Judah and the prophecy that follows the blessing, are a result of divine grace, not because Judah has earned it. This is God's sovereign favor, not human merit, on display. And generally speaking, we don't like that. We like it when God's sovereign favor is bestowed upon us. We in We enjoy that. when We're the beneficiaries of it. We think it's wonderful and it's awesome. And indeed it is. But there's something deep down inside us that still wants to think in some way, shape or form we have earned or merited or we deserve God's favor. And friends, the blessing and the prophecy related to Judah remind us that no, this is by God's good grace all the blessings we have are not because we deserve them. They're not because we earn them. They're not because we're good enough, we're smart enough, and doggone people like us. No, they're there because God is sovereign. And God shows unmerited favor to people who deserve wrath and judgment and condemnation. And so, friends, as much as we might not like the fact that Judah is getting both the blessing and the prophecy that accompanies it, we must understand that if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the recipient of the same kind of divine favor. God has shown his grace to you in a way that even surpasses the kind of grace and mercy that he's shown Judah That's the great surprise. But there isn't just surprise in this text. There's also scandal. Remember, these are 12 brothers standing around the deathbed of their father, but these 12 brothers are not equals. Even though Judah has been given the blessing of preeminence, even though Judah now finds out that he's going to be sort of the first among the brothers, he is not the most important man standing in the room. There is one who clearly stands above the rest. Let's remember the context of Genesis chapter 49. This is happening in Goshen in Egypt. The brothers probably would have walked there, all of them except for one and he would have come with a convoy of black suburbans. There would have been secret service guys at the door with earpieces, and they would all be packing heat. Joseph stands around the bed as one of the 12, and yet he is not in some sense his brother's equal. He is the vice chancellor of the world's single remaining superpower. And what's even more stunning and more amazing is it's God who put him there. Joseph didn't get there because he hustled, because he figured out some sort of life hack to get him into this position of power. No, as we've seen, as we started back in Genesis chapter 37, this was God's plan to put Joseph in this particular position. And after years of Joseph being kicked around, God elevates him through Pharaoh in order that many lives would be saved. So Joseph is going to receive, as we see in verses 22 to 26, Joseph is going to receive a fruit. He's going to receive a double blessing from his father. But here's what he's not going to get. He's not going to get the promise of royal kingship. He doesn't say of Jacob what he says of Judah in verse 10. Look at Isaiah, excuse me, look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Not what we were expecting to read. We would expect to see the scepter shall not depart from Joseph. Joseph. After all, he's already got it. Nor the ruler staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, what do you think has been going on? The whole world is showing up. The whole world is bowing down at Joseph's feet because he's got food. What is being prophesied of Judah has already happened. In Joseph's life and here's Jacob saying but guess what it's not going to be in Joseph's line that the scepter is not going to depart it's not going to be through Joseph that this wonderful promise is going to take place no it's going to be through Judah's line and it's at that point you sit back and you go Jacob seriously dude what are you doing Do you not care about the lives of the other 11 or at least 10 of them? I mean, we know Joseph has already shown he's going to show Benjamin favor. And Benjamin doesn't really get much. I mean, when it comes to the blessings, if you look at verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey in the evening, dividing the spoil. Okay, well, there you go. But to say. To Joseph. Hey, the scepter is not going to stay with you. It's going to go to Judah. The scepter is not going to stay with the firstborn son of Rachel, the wife whom he loved. Instead, it's going to go to the fourthborn son of Leah. Why? What's going on? I love... The words of one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, a guy named Dale Ralph Davis, (laughs) he he answers that question this way. What what in the world is happening here? Here's what he says. This is God's doing. God does as he pleases. This is God's doing. And God does as he pleases. Why in the world would you take the scepter away from Joseph and instead say it's going to go to Jacob? Well, because this is what this is God's plan. And this is what God does. This is God's doing. God does as he pleases. That brings us to our third point. As we try to understand this prophecy, and as we try to understand what God is up to, we need to understand that Genesis chapter 49 serves as a sort of cornerstone for the way the rest of the Bible thinks about the coming messiah now in genesis chapter 49 verse 10 and you see there's just i've I've given you three examples and we're going to kind of we're going to do a little biblical theology this morning we're going to kind of trace these themes as the writers of scripture use them and we're going to get some sense of what the holy spirit is up to in genesis chapter 49 verse 10 we're told that the scepter shall not depart from judah Well, fast forward in Israel's history to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, we're told that the nation of Israel has gathered. They've come to the prophet Samuel, and they've said to him, Hey, Samuel, I'm paraphrasing now. We want to be like the nations. We want a king. Samuel says, Okay. Uh, God tells him, Hey, they're not rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. It's fine. I'll show you the guy that I want you to anoint as king. And so he goes, and in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're introduced to a guy named Saul. But we're told right away that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so now we go, hey, wait a minute. Uh, Something here doesn't quite gel. And it only takes us about five chapters to learn that Saul's kingship is a failure. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel travels to Bethlehem, freaks the elders of the town out. They want to know why he's there. After all, a prophet showing up could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. Samuel says, it's okay. I come in peace. Consecrate yourselves. And he does. And there Jesse comes with most of his sons, most but not all. And it's finally David on whom the Holy Spirit says, this is the man. And Samuel anoints him to be the next king. And then 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12, as David enters the service of King Saul, we're told that David is from Judah. Move on then to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God makes a covenant with David in which he says, One of your descendants will sit on the throne before me forever. So when It's prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. We move from that prophecy to David, who is from the tribe of Judah. We get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're told that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. And this is not in your bulletin, but we could go from there to Matthew chapter 1, and we learn that Jesus is of the line and lineage of David. And we trace it back and we find in his genealogy, Judah. Well, that's not the only use the Bible makes of this particular text. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, the first half, where it's mentioned that he's going to come in and he's going to be binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. We're going, huh, okay. Okay. Well, so he's going to have some livestock. that's an interesting statement. but then we get to Zechariah chapter nine verse nine. and Zechariah takes this sort of vague uh, reference and applies it specifically to the coming messiah. Listen to Zechariah chapter nine verse nine. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of donkey. Well, we move from Zechariah chapter 9 to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 tells us of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem before the final week of his life. And in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew actually quotes verbatim from Zechariah. See, the Bible, as one commentator puts it this way, the Bible tightens the links between Jacob's latent messianic blessing, Zechariah's explicit messianic prophecy, and the life and ministry of Jesus. You see, this this sort of vague blessing, this prophecy that's made in Genesis chapter 49, verse 11, the first half, is going to be fulfilled. In the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, you have this rather interesting allusion to the fact that he's going to have washed his garments in vine and the vest his vest in the blood of grapes, which is sort of an interesting choice. You know, if you've ever spilled wine on a garment, you might as well just throw the garment away. It's going to stain it. And so, why in the world would they make this statement of he's washed his garments in wine? Scholars have Come up with some really weird kind of wonky ideas as to why that would be. But when you get to Isaiah chapter 63, and let me ask you to keep your finger in Genesis 49, but turn to Isaiah chapter 63. It's page 752 in your pew Bible. In Isaiah chapter 63, and it's actually the first six verses. You have, as you may recall, when we went through the the suffering servant songs in Isaiah, you have this picture of the servant who's going to suffer. And then beginning in Isaiah chapter 61, you have this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 62, we're told that God's salvation is coming for his people. And now in Isaiah chapter 63, you wonder, well, how is this salvation going to come? What's going to happen? Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. From the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Do you see what Isaiah does with that prophecy related to the garments of Judah's uh, ancestor being washed in wine? And then when we get to the text that Gabrielle read for us this morning. And we have that powerful description of the resurrected and glorified Christ returning a second time. Not like he did the first time, but returning the second time. We see how rich and how vivid the picture is that the Bible paints for us as we think about the person and work of Jesus. And it all has its roots in Genesis chapter 49. It all has its roots in verse 10 and in verse 11. Now, you may be going, okay, pastor, that's a nice little intellectual exercise, but what's it have to do with us? Well, I, I hope uh, one of the things that you've seen and understood is that when you read your Bible, uh, it's, it's, um, it's quite in vogue now to read the Old Testament and go, okay. I know Jesus is in here somehow. I just got to figure out how to get there. And let me just say, that's not a bad way to read the Bible, but I hope that you see, and I hope that you understand that we need to read both ways. As uh, my mentor and father, Dr. Paul house would say, the old Testament is not junior varsity scripture. Rather, The Old Testament is the standard that Jesus has to meet if he really is the Messiah. These prophecies have to come true if Jesus really is who he claims to be. It's why Matthew and John go to such great pains to show and to demonstrate that this thing that was promised in Genesis chapter 49 verses 10 and 11 that then gets echoed in 1 Samuel 17 and in 2 Samuel 7 and in Zechariah 9 and in Isaiah 63. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. Paul puts it this way, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in the Lord Jesus. We pray or we confess That Jesus is the Christ in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, Jesus is in the Old Testament, but let's read the book both ways. Don't just read back. Read forward. I also hope, probably in a more practical way, that it might help us with some of this uh, nonsense when we walk around and say, well, you know, I really like to think of Jesus as dot, 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 dot. Several so years ago, we, as we were going through the book of Revelation, it seemed like I was having lunch or coffee on a regular basis with people who were like, okay, this whole idea of Jesus is coming judge, and this whole idea of the wrath of God is really kind of freaking me out. And Pastor, I have to be honest with you, I don't like to think of God in that way. I don't like to think of Jesus in that way. Okay. Well, you do realize that Jesus didn't have a free hand to determine his own ministry, don't you? You do realize that repeatedly Jesus came and said, hey, I'm only here to do the will of my father. And that when we understand texts like Genesis chapter 49 and 1 Samuel 17 and 2 Samuel 7 and Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 63, that's just to name a few. You do understand that the shape and the content of Jesus' life and ministry was in essence determined for him. Friends, if Jesus didn't get to walk around going, well, you know, I really think I want my ministry to be like this. What makes you think that you can walk around and go, well, you know, I really like to think of Jesus in this way. Let the book punch back a little bit. Let Jesus be who the Bible presents him to be. He is loving Savior, but he is also coming King and Judge. There is both surprise and scandal in how the Bible presents Jesus to us. We see it particularly in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, again, we're told uh, there are these seals that need to be opened because the seals represent the judgment of God. And John is in heaven, and he's mourning. And he's mourning because he hears a voice from one of the angels saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So what does John do? He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, and please hear the language of Genesis 49. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I love this next Verse, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw. Here's what John saw, not a mighty lion. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne friends do you see the surprise do you hear the echo of Genesis 49 the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered he can open the scroll how did he conquer he is the lamb standing as though it had been slain do you know this jesus perhaps you're here this morning and you you like the idea of a crucified jesus you like the idea of a jesus who came and paid the penalty for your sin who took your place on the cross but you're not particularly uh, all that excited about a jesus who is the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david the one who is conquered You like Jesus as Savior, you're just not so keen about him as king. Or perhaps you're here and you like the idea of the kingship of Jesus. But you struggle for various sort of reasons. You struggle with the idea that Jesus loved you to the point that he was willing to die in your place. We sing it all the time, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Friends, as we come to the table this morning, we are reminded of both the surprise and the scandal. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who was slain. We come this morning and we are reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ we are reminded of both the surprise and the scandal that a man who was innocent was declared guilty so that those who are guilty can be declared innocent. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Or we just, we marvel at the way in which uh, through your spirit and through different human writers, we see this particular Messiah. He's not Jesus as we want him to be. He's not Jesus for postmodern America. No, he is the Christ in accordance with the scriptures. And Lord, we bless you for that. We bless you that in him all your promises find their yes and there, amen. For Lord, the one that is a particularly precious to us, is that even in the midst of death, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is life. Or as Jesus said to two grieving sisters, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Father, we thank you for that life. And I pray this morning uh, that if there is someone here that does not know the life that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ, the life that is offered, that this would be the day of salvation. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.